afternoon. My name is David Epstein. I'm a visiting scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. It is my pleasure to talk today with David Cooney of the law firm of Sidley and Austin. David and some other Sidley lawyers have recently completed a book that's being published under the auspices of the American Bankruptcy Institute that focuses on single-asset real estate cases. And as the title of this book suggests, with its use of both the term principles uh, and also the term strategies, uh, that this is a book that's going to be helpful both to the lawyer who perhaps does not have a great deal of experience with single-asset real estate cases and to the lawyer who has already worked on single-asset real estate cases previously. Uh, But David, just to get us started, could you make sure that everyone has an understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about a single-asset real estate case? Sure. Well, the the phrase single-asset real estate uh, is a statutorily defined phrase. It's in the definition section 101, excuse me, of the bankruptcy code. And I think it really has two meanings. One is sort of the tight statutory meaning, which is, and I'll read the short version of it, it's real property consisting or constituting a single property or project other than residential real property, uh, which generates substantially all of its gross income um, and on which no substantial business is being conducted by a debtor other than the business of operating the real property and activities incidental thereto. So um, in short, um, it's really meant to be almost universally all real estate projects in the way they are developed today in in America, which is almost all projects today are developed uh, in a single asset limited liability company. It used to be partnerships. Now they're all LLCs. And uh, uh, they're almost all done because of the securitization of commercial real estate uh, in single purpose entities. So the phrase single asset real estate case kind of refers to both the tight code definition, um, but I think you know it refers generically to the, the real world structure of how real estate is financed today, all of which, or most of which I would say, is in a <clears throat> single purpose entity which turns out to be and to meet the definition of a single asset real estate case under the code. And so I take it if we were talking about raw land or land that's still in the process of being developed, that that's always going to be a single-asset real estate case. Similarly, if we were talking about office buildings that have already been completed or apartment buildings, I take it that they would typically be single-asset real estate cases, while most, say, for example, full-service hotels, because of the substantial business limitation, would probably not qualify. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. And I think the, um, I guess the sort of the standard joke is if you're, if you, you want to get out of the definition, you sell a few golf balls and t-shirts and uh, try and pretend that you have some other substantial business. But in reality, uh, you're exactly right. Hotels, marinas, golf courses are not single asset real estate cases, although they, they sort of look like it. Uh, but they have other real-world businesses, and, and thus they don't meet the definition of under the code. Back in the 1990s, Congress singled out these single-asset real estate cases, came up with this definition and some special provisions. Uh, what was that all about? Why did Congress 
single out and enact these provisions that deal specifically with single-asset real estate cases? I would say, uh, historically, um, single-asset real estate cases, even before there was such a phrase, were looked upon uh, with with great disdain uh, by the bankruptcy courts. I, this was before the era of uh, securitization and, and, and huge amounts of money going into these cases. Uh, and so I think the courts were, I mean, excuse me, Congress was endeavoring to uh, quicken the pace and supposedly make it harder for these cases to either obtain confirmation or spend too much time in bankruptcy, one or the other, to simply accelerate it or to end them. Um, I would say at the end of the day, uh, it's had almost, from my perspective, almost no effect whatsoever other than to give a name to what already had sort of a generic name anyway. But I, I don't really think the the strategy and thinking around real estate bankruptcy uh, rises or falls very much on the the SARE provisions, you, you pay attention to them, but I don't think they've made a big difference uh, in the outcome of these cases. Well, if it's not the uh, single-asset real estate provisions in the bankruptcy code uh, that is an impediment to filing, uh, what do you see as the greatest impediment to filing a single-asset real estate case, given the structure of transactions today? Well, probably the... Um the two largest impediments, uh, in an odd way, have nothing to do per se with the bankruptcy code. And, and one, of course, is what's known as the springing guarantee. And that is because most real estate today is financed on a what's called a non-recourse basis, which means the borrower is only liable uh, to the extent of the, of the value of the collateral. There's a third-party guarantor, but that liability will not, quote, spring or arise unless and until one of the so-called bad boy acts occurs, and those acts always include the filing of a bankruptcy. So when a developer is confronted with the decision or the question, do I file for bankruptcy, it typically means subjecting their personal assets to the springing guarantee. And I can tell you from experience, most developers uh, are not willing to take that risk. So the... um, the, the state law development on springing guarantees has been very pro-lender, uh, very supportive of the springing guarantee. And folks who, are, who do a lot of this, as I do, will tell you the, the impediment has really been the springing guarantee and not so much the single asset provisions in the code. So that has proven to be probably the biggest impediment to filings today. With respect to the impact that that bankruptcy law in the form of case law may have had on single-asset real estate cases, Uh, there's, of course, the Till case, which while a Chapter 13 case uh, was interpreting uh, language that is the same in 13 and 11, uh, has the Till case on interest rates had much of an impact. Do you think it's going to have much of an impact on single-asset real estate cases? The answer is yes, mostly, but with some important qualifications. So first let me do the yes part. Uh, The key part of Till is that that was the Supreme Court addressing the critical question in a real estate case 
which is what should be the rate of interest that will be charged on the reorganized mortgage note for our purposes. And uh, in looking at cash flow from a real estate project, the determination of the interest rate on the principal amount is sort of the driving mathematical key to success in bankruptcy. When interest rates are high, and they're not now, of course, I mean, we're at historic lows, but when they're high, uh, single digits are you know, 8, 9, or 10, then TIL becomes a life or death uh, issue because what the Supreme Court more or less held, it may have been dicta, was that they did not want to see, quote, eye-popping rates uh, on the interest rate, and they expected rates would be roughly in the range of 1% to 3% above a national prime rate of interest. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not uh, a rule of law, but it was a, a guide that the Supreme Court suggested. And I think what developers are being told today, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to figure out if you can do a cram down, you have to presume the court, a bankruptcy court, will give you a, a rate of interest one to three points above the national prime rate. The um, and I think if interest rates go back up, till is going to be extremely important. The reason it's not absolutely uh, controlling is because there are a lot of um, courts, and you've alluded to this, that noted that the Supreme Court said, well, but if you have an efficient market, mm-hmm. then maybe you don't have to use this rate. You can you can try and figure out what the efficient market is doing. And um, a lot of courts have picked up on that. Um, and I think they're the they're not writing with great clarity in my judgment as to what this so-called efficient market is and if that means we just go back to old law and try and figure out what a market rate would be but i would say in balance I mean, to me bottom line is this the supreme court really said no eye popping rates and in, in real estate speak what that means to me is i tell bankers and developers do not expect to get a big rate of interest on a cram down out of a bankruptcy court and therefore cram down is more likely, not less likely, on, on that fact alone. Your book also discusses uh, bad faith dismissal, and I know there's a substantial body of case law that uh, addresses uh, contentions of, of bad faith dismissal in connection with single-asset real estate cases. What do you see happening in, in that particular area going forward? Yeah, it's a very active area. You know, the... Um, uh, back in the late 80s, I think it was Judge Edith Jones from the Fifth Circuit um, in Texas was seeing a lot of single-asset cases, and I, I think she disliked them and uh, vocalized, as others had before her, um, a disdain for single-asset cases, and many of them were dismissed on bad faith. Uh, and a lot of courts still will articulate that. Uh, there are several key movements in the other direction. Uh, the Fourth Circuit, as we talk about in the book, uh, has adopted a, a dual test called the objective and subjective requirement for bad faith, which really means um, unless there's almost no hope of a plan, uh, the case should not be dismissed early on for bad faith. There are other jurisdictions, and, and New York is one, where bad faith is can still be more active. Uh, but if you look at what happened uh in the large cases like general growth, uh, what I think you're beginning to see is that the courts are treating real estate like any other um, industry uh, with a little more, if I might, dignity 
it, it's kind of come out of the backwoods. And I don't think judges have the same uh, reaction that all real estate cases um, are suspect. I think they look at them fairly and more neutrally now. And I think some of the uh, the bias against single asset cases has gone away. But I know when I started my career and started doing this work, uh, there was a very strong bad faith bias against single asset cases. I think that is mostly but not totally come and gone. Uh, your book also extensively uh, explains and explores the requirement that there be an impaired class and the case law with respect to artificial impairment. What do you see happening with respect to that? Very important issue. The, um, you know, if you look at the capital structure of, of a typical real estate debtor and you apply it to bankruptcy law, there's really only two or three important classes, and the secured lender is in one class, and, and they're the no vote for cram down. And, and then there could always be a small group of trade creditors that will be unsecured, and they'll be in the other class. Uh, there could be some other impaired classes, but uh, or rather administrative claims, but they do not vote. So ordinarily, the the success or failure of a of a plan depends on whether or not there is one impaired assenting class, and and it is kind of the key to success from the developer side. Um, so there's been a lot of development in this area, uh, a lot of gerrymandering to uh, you know construct classes that will vote uh, yes or no, or usually for the debtor side will vote yes. Uh, one of the big areas is whether or not the lender's unsecured deficiency claim uh, has to go into the same class with the trade creditors. Uh, those courts that say it, they, it has to, and the Third Circuit is the leading circuit on that, makes it very difficult for a debtor to confirm a plan because that large claim will control the vote. Uh, one other circuit holds the other way and puts the unsecured deficiency claim in its own class, which makes a plan much more likely. Uh, there's a brand new case <clears throat> just came out after the book was went to galleys. It comes out of Arizona. It's uh, In Re Loop 76. It's actually been decided now by the Ninth Circuit BAP, uh, and they've held that a mortgage claim, uh, the deficiency claim, can be put into a separate class if you have a third-party guarantor. And as you probably know, in real estate finance today, almost all loans are guaranteed by a third party. So if that Ninth Circuit decision holds, uh, we're now going to be going in the opposite direction from the Third Circuit. Mortgage lender claims will be put into their own class, and debtors will be able to get one impaired class. <clears throat> so this could be uh, a major seismic shift in outcome if the Ninth Circuit BAP is sustained. The book also discusses the, uh, the new value issue in cases like Bonner Mall and the Supreme Court decision in 203 North LaSalle. Uh, do you see new value plans likely being filed in single-asset real estate cases? Uh, I do. Actually, I think there are... Um uh, I think 203 North LaSalle, in fact, did uh, send a signal that new value plans would be permitted. It is an open question, I mean, to be fair to the debate. 
Supreme Court has never said in a binary sense, uh, we find that the new value exception survived the enactment of the 1978 code. But having said that, they then went on to say, but if there is such a thing, here's the way you have to do it. And I, the way the bankruptcy courts, in my view, have read it is, number one, that there is a new value exception, uh, provided that you, you know, put in new money. It's got to be uh, reasonably equivalent to the value of what's retained. And then either you have to auction the equity or terminate exclusivity. And there are um, several cases in the last, I'd say, five or six years that have used new value. <clears throat> and I, I am seeing on a, a, I'd say, at least a monthly basis, one or two cases where the new value plans are being used. Uh, and I think it's, it's the, the way that what it permits, it permits the owner to retain their equity interest uh, even when the class above them, the unsecured class, is not paid in full. Uh, it's an exception to the absolute priority rule. <clears throat> and I think it, it's a very important tool for developers. It's a very serious problem for lenders. And unless a more conservative Supreme Court backs off of uh, 203 North LaSalle and says, well, it was dicta, uh, I think it's going to be the law of the land, and that there's going to be uh, it's going to be a very uh, potent tool for developers, and one that lenders are going to have to deal with over time. David, putting all this together in in, in counseling, I guess either side. I, I understand that your practice can be counseling primarily the people on the lender side. Uh, putting this all together is cram down still a likely possibility then in a single asset real estate case? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, again, the the fairest way, I think, to summarize it, and what I think I might to be telling my lenders, is something like this. the if, they, if the debtor can get over the springing guarantee problem and the impaired class problem, and if the project has reasonably good cash flow. It's it's not an empty mall. It's not a piece of vacant land. You know, it's an otherwise attractive, cash-flowing, well-tenanted project. Then, in my view, that is a likely candidate for cram-down with the game-changers are going to be the interest rate. That's the till question. And then the valuation by the court on what the principal amount of the mortgage should be based on the value of the collateral. But those numbers, you know, typically work in a normal cash flowing project. So I, I have always believed and continue to believe that um, cram down is serious and cram down is alive and well, but that the impediments in the springing guarantee and the one impaired class are good blocking positions. And um, I think it has been playing out that way for a long time, and I, I believe it still is. Well, in our conversation today, David, as, as, as well as in your book, uh, you've been willing not only to explain the law as it is, but to, to try to give guidance as to how it's likely to be applied in the future. If I can, can get you to look ahead even more, you know, we're looking at the Supreme Court handing down a decision in Radlax that's going to uh, tell us, I would hope, something more about uh, the prospect of, of credit bidding. Uh, do you anticipate that this uh, Supreme Court decision in Radlax, whatever it is, 
is going to have an impact on single asset real estate cases. Yes, I do. In fact, I think it's so important. I've invited um, <clears throat> several of my banking clients to come watch the oral argument. Uh, look, Radlax will decide or could decide <clears throat> whether or not credit bidding is either statutorily required <clears throat> in all plans of reorganization or even constitutionally required. And, and it may be that it's an aspect, <clears throat> excuse me, it's an aspect of a of a lien that cannot be taken away. But the right to credit bid is what ensures a secured lender that the they will not be what's called cashed out of the project. And if they if the borrower can sell the project for less than the lender's valuation and give the lender either a bond or a note or a pile of cash for less than the lender's view of value, then the, the lien has been effectively impaired and the <clears throat> value of the mortgage has been destroyed. Because under state law, <clears throat> if the lender were to foreclose, they can always credit bid up to the full amount of their mortgage. And therefore, they determine under normal state law when that property will be sold to a third person. The Supreme Court is going to decide whether the opposite of that happens in bankruptcy. Because if they decide you can take away credit bidding under a plan, then the debtors will sell to whoever they wish, usually an affiliate, <clears throat> and whatever that sales price is and those proceeds, that's what the lender will get. And they will not have the critically important protection of credit bidding and therefore, in my judgment, will lose a very key component of what it means to have a lien. So we are, um, I'm watching this case very closely. I think the banks are. I consider it to be a <clears throat> monumentally important decision by the Supreme Court. David, I thank you for taking the time to, uh, to talk with me and, and provide these insights to our listeners. Even more than that, thank you and, and the other lawyers at Sidley who worked on the book for preparing this uh, extremely useful handbook on the principles and strategies of single-asset real estate cases. Good talking with you. Likewise, thank you. I enjoyed it.